Hello, and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm Christian Kuhn, author of the book Failing Boldly and co-founder of Urban Village Church in Chicago. My guest this week is Trey Hall, Director of Evangelism and Growth for the Methodist Church in Great Britain and the other co-founder of Urban Village, which celebrates its 10th birthday on March 28th. I thought it would be fun to have Trey on not only to share about his own personal story and journey, but for us to do a little reminiscing about the last 10 years. All this plus Trey talks about his current position and the state of the church in Great Britain. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Trey Hall, welcome to the Failing Boldly podcast. It's great to be here, Chris. Well, many people who listen to this podcast know of Urban Village and uh, know of uh, the history, a little bit of the history of it and are being co-founders of it. But for those who don't know, let's um, first start with kind of your own backstory and your upbringing in uh, the South and in Memphis. So let's start there. Sure. Well, uh, like you said, I'm from Memphis, so I'm a son of the Deep South, and the Deep South is a, a beautiful place and a broken place, and so there are things I love about being from the South and things that um, I don't love so much. Uh, I migrated to Chicago. I'll say this as a, at the start. I migrated to Chicago right after grad school, after seminary, with a one-year hiatus in, in England, and um, uh, when I got to when I got to Chicago, I realized how thoroughly Southern I am. Uh, <laughs> I, still, I still sort of feel that even in London. So um, I'm not the only person who has made this part of his or her mission. But I, I do think about y'all as a kind of kingdom of God word that I'm trying to you know spread throughout the whole world. So what do you know? Do you do you remember like w- like an example or two? Or what was it about when you moved to Chicago and you made made yourself realize like oh I really am of the South. Do you remember specifically like things that made you think that? Well, I was thinking, I mean, I was thinking generally just the way I talk or <laughs> the way using the word y'all just as a, <clears throat> a particular thing. In some ways, I think the South and the Midwest are kind of, I call them kissing cousins regionally. I mean, there's a lot of similarities sort of being kind of rootsy people, people who are generally, I think, less up their own ass. That's a horrible regional stereotype. It is our brothers and sisters (laughs) in the West Coast and Northeast. But you know, that that sense of that people who are kind of rootsy people. I I love that about the South and about the Midwest. Um, So that's what I was thinking of in in, in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I want to back up a little bit and have you talk about your uh, spiritual upbringing. And I know, I know that you, your faith life really started to come into formation uh, in college, but why don't you talk a little bit about that and kind of your own faith upbringing or lack thereof and your experience at Middle Tennessee State and uh, what, how that changed you. Sure. So I was raised uh, in a loving family, a warm, good, good family, um, had everything we needed. It's sort of a blue collar, blue collar family. My, my dad and mom are great folks. Uh, my family is one side of the family is sort of culturally Christian and, um, one side of my immediate family and one side sort of comes from an agnostic atheist kind of perspective. And so in in my household, though we were culturally Christian, there wasn't a lot of talk about spirituality or faith or kind of ultimate reality. Um, And so um, my my grandparents, my dad's parents would take me to church at St. Luke's Methodist church and we would go. And so I had some contact with that church uh, growing up. Um, But it was really at uni, uh, as we say in England, at at university or at college, um, where where I took some deep steps into Christian community. And uh, it was because I was invited to the Wesley Foundation there at Middle Tennessee State University and met a community of friends 
who um, wanted to know my story and who wanted to share their stories. And so it was there that I really felt like I came alive to God um, and, and took some deep, deep steps to sort of naming myself as a Christian and as a committed Christian. And it was there that my vocation really shifted. So I think throughout my, I mean, I've always been a kid that was pretty spiritual, uh, sort of searching for significance. I was always that sort of nerdy kid growing up that was interested in the beyond aliens, you know, space, nature. Hmm. And so in some ways, um, finding a, a committed religious community and consciously Christian community at, at university helped me uh, sort of for the first time with peers in a deep way, kind of get at some of those big questions that I'd had and talk about kind of ultimate reality. And so at, at, at college, you know, vocation shifted for me as I began paying attention more to God's movement in my life. Um, I I'd switched from being pre-med to uh, really thinking about going into ministry, ordained ministry and doing theology. And so um, the joke I tell, which is a, which is a true story, which is I went home within a, a few, a few, within the first year of, of college and just said, I've become a committed Christian. I've come out of the closet as a gay man. <laughs> I'm not going to be a doctor anymore, mom and dad. I'm, I think I've, God wants me for a pastor. And, and they were, they were a little freaked out by all of those things. Uh, so, but some deep, deep shifting. So I owe so much to that, um, that college Christian campus community. And it's why I think I'm so committed now to Christian community with young adults. Um, uh, so, so that, so that they, um, can, can find a place to wrestle with their vocational issues and, and meet and encounter, um, the living God. Your, your brain, your soul must've just been, uh, wrestling so much in that time when you were thinking about your identity, both as an identity, as somebody who was being formed for the vocation of Christian ministry. And as you were, uh, you know, wrestling with who am I as and who am I attracted to? And so talk a little bit about how those interrelated and kind of what was going through your own internal processes as you were, as you were trying to figure all this out. Yeah. Well, that, that first year of college was, as you sort of say, it was a year in which I was wrestling with kind of identity in faith and identity as a, as a fully human person and including my sexuality. And those those things uh, went together, those components, mm. dimensions in my identity went together. And so I've always said that becoming a committed Christian um, at college uh, and sort of claiming that in a really, really deep and profound way um, and, and, and continuing to explore and deepen my faith, it, it, it helped me come out of the closet. So mm. I, I didn't come out and then you know, discover Christianity. My, my, my Christianity helped me discover myself as a gay person. Mm. And so, and I'm so grateful for that. And I think in, 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 in some ways it was about at college through this Wesley foundation, this campus Christian community was being on retreat and having some, uh, I don't know what you want to call them ecstatic experiences of God, some deep mm. intimate experiences. I wouldn't say revelations necessarily, but a sense just profound, sense of being loved and known and seen and, but in a, in a kind of mystical, some sort of mystical way, you know, and that being in the context of worship and prayer on these retreats with friends at, at, at college. Um, so that, that kind of subjective experience of God knowing that, Oh, I, I am, I'm seen and known and loved 
as Trey and, and that experience, um, there is a stability that comes that came to me through that experience of knowing myself loved experience mm-hmm. that 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 experience alongside of some of the intellectual and conceptual exploration I was doing around Christianity and our the thought world of Christianity and just being, you know, like, oh, we talk about incarnation, the idea mm-hmm. of God being in flesh and resurrection and being broken, uh, broken out of uh, the cages and locks and traps and, and scripts of, of, the, of, well, of, of that, which is false, that, which is sinful, that, which is um, limiting and not of God. So all of that, all of that theological discourse, you know, uh, landed for me in a real experiential way at 18, 19 years old. And so, you know, I was like, well, if resurrection is true, if incarnation is true in general, objectively, then what does it mean for that to be true for me? Um, And that had dimensions. Yeah. That has, that that has dimensions for me as a gay man, but also in every other dimension of of my life and my life in community with others. And that seemed, well, I've had my own experience of talking with LGBTQ folks over the years and certainly You've had so many conversations and it seems like, well, I shouldn't say that. I'll ask you this is, do you think your experience is unusual for people in that, for people who are exploring both, what does it mean for me to be, to identify as, as LGBTQ and identify as a Christian? Cause I think generally, I think sometimes the thought is when people wrestle with both of those things that they're antithetical to one another for you, it sounds like they actually interweaved together. And so in your experience in talking with other LGBTQ LGBT Christians, do you think your story is an anomaly or do you think there are more of them like that out there? I think that things have changed a lot in the past uh, 25 years, 26 years since I've come out. I mean, I think because of the the way that the church in particular and maybe other forms of religion in general kind of constructed the, the conversation around sexuality, particularly queer sexuality and, and religion that, yeah, there was, there was a, a false dichotomy, a divorce of those two things, which was perpetuated. But, and I think that the, the religion, the Christianity bears the onus of that, you know, that it's, 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 that's, it's the fault of, of the church that perpetuated that in my opinion, as someone who's loves the church. So yes, there was, uh, I, I think it, when I, when I came out 25 years ago, it was, my story was experienced as an anomaly and, and I, in some ways experienced it as an anomaly. I think over the past two and a half decades, what's wonderful is that mm. there's much more of an integration that's happening culturally. So being a person of faith, not just being a Christian does not, is not analogous with not being queer. Um, and, and, and vice versa. So, you know, you see in the queer community, many people of different faiths and, and deeply committed Christians. Um, so I, I, I love that it, if, it, if it was an anomaly two and a half decades ago, it's not mm. as much. Yeah. When you, after you graduated uh, from uh, undergraduate and you had a sense of some sort of calling, did you know right away what kind of vocation that would look like? Did you have a pretty good sense of that you would go to seminary and that you would go into the local church or were you still trying to figure that out? I was definitely still trying to figure it out. I knew I wanted to study theology because um, I loved and love still 
um, God and um, both in the kind of intellectual pursuit of that, uh, of God or experiencing God, but I, I love, I love God. And so I wanted to, I thought, well, gosh, I'll be, I'm 21 years old. I finished with my undergraduate. I'm going to go study God for three years. And that just, so I, I knew I wanted to do that. I didn't know what that meant for me vocationally. I had a strong sense that I was being asked by God to serve God in some way through the church. And I think we're all called to serve God in some, in some way through different organizations, you know, and different institutions. But I felt a a profound sense that it was through the church. I didn't know if that was going to be as a a minister, ordained minister or a a lay minister or someone working as a social worker or an agent. I just didn't know. But um, so when I went, I went to seminary to study at at Emory, Candler, you know, Candler uh, School of Theology at Emory and just loved my experience there. And one of the things I discovered there was, um, was you know, you, you have your internship in the church and how much I loved, loved being in community with the same people mm. and, and walking through, um, walking through life together, undergoing God together. Um, and just, I, I loved it. Um, I love, I love the local community. I love the local church. I love um, local communities of Christians trying to figure out uh, life uh, in, in God together. So, yeah. So it was there at seminary where I was like, oh, I think I, I'd like, I'm, I, I feel called to be ordained. And so engaged the ordination discernment process through the United Methodist Church. And that was back in 1990, oh gosh, 1996, 97. Yeah, and I'm certainly mm-hmm. it's, it's fairly well known uh, among church folks about the arguments and fights that the United Methodist Church has had over the last few decades about the issue of human sexuality. So did the thought, as you were exploring both I'm going, I'm, I'm going, sticking with this denomination, knowing that there are going to be some, uh, to put it mildly, challenges and barriers in front of you, potentially. Did that dissuade you at all from either going United Methodist or being in the local ministry? Or did you get a sense like, I am strongly called to this, and I'll just figure it out as we go along? Well, I, I had a strong, I had a strong um, sense that I was called to uh, the United Methodist Church. I mean, I, I love, um, I mean, it's, it's where I became a committed Christian. I, I, maybe because I was, I was kind of um, had formation there that I, you know, came to think about the world and God in kind of Wesleyan terms. So it just makes sense. It's my, it's my, it's my home tradition. I, I love it. I love, I love Wesleyan, the Wesleyan take on, on theology and the Wesleyan framework. So, so I wanted to do it. They're my, they're my, they're my people. I mean, I, I did some, um, I did some uh, sort of flirting with other traditions at, at college and in the first part of seminary and with the Episcopal church and really was, was worshiping half the time at an Episcopal church and seminary and loved the Episcopal church. At the end of the day, it was just a, a sense of like, you know who your people are. And, yeah. and that's, that's, that was just a, not that there's anything wrong with the Episcopal church or, you know, it's just like when I went to Methodist communities, I was like, oh, the, these are my people. Mm. So yeah, it was a sense of, of, of feeling called there. I also think this is 1996, 97. I think w- with, with regard to the church's kind of policy, homo, homo um, phobic, I think, and heterosexist policies uh, that they were shifting and that the church, the, the, the way the votes were going, then it looked like critical mass was moving towards a, a transition. Obviously that has not happened. So I felt at 21, like it was a, a good, um, it, 
it wasn't wasn't a bad move to to, to join a, an institution that was that was moving towards change. Yeah, um, so that's still happening. But um, yeah. one of the things I love about your phrase and knowing you is that when you said these are my people, and when you say that, correct me if I'm wrong on this. When you say that, you're not necessarily saying my people are only the people who agree with me. Like when you say these are my people, and that includes people with whom I may get into some arguments uh, and I may not always disagree. And so when you, and that's a, sometimes I think in the, in the faith, we, when we say, these are my people, we only want people who think exactly like us or we look, that look like us. But my sense of you that you have a more generous way of describing these are my people. Would you say that's true or? Uh, I hope, I hope so. I sure hope so. (laughs) Um, I do. I do feel that. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, what what I meant by my people are um, what I mean by my people is um, like I love the heartfulness of Methodists hmm. across the theological and political spectrum. There's a in general. This is what I'm meant by my people. A sense of like, yeah, we want to go where people are. We want hmm. to reach people and try new things. Um, we want our faith to be kind of embodied in, in, and I think every denomination would say this, but there's a sort of, a, there's a, there's an accent that I love about the Methodist church that we want it to, we're, we're warm hearted people. Mm. Um, we talk about our feelings. I know that's not exactly the, the definition of John Wesley's sort of understanding of experience, but there's a, yeah, there's a, again, it goes back to maybe what I love about being Southern, but there's, there's a, mm. there's a sense of a, a, a rootedness and a rootsiness about Methodists. Um, uh, yeah, that I just love. Um, so that's, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah, and, and, yeah and, and I, I, I think I honest, I honestly can say this and, um, I, I love worshiping with people who think really differently than I do mm. about a number of things, some of them controversial and some of them not, you know, right. but that's, I, lo- I love that. I love that. And also not to say too, that you, that you, uh, and you didn't say this. I just want to make it clear to people who might be listening you've always are not afraid to push back and to argue and to um, seek justice. It's not, it's not a, these are my people. Let's just all get along. There's also times where you, there will be real conflict and real fighting. And that's part of it too. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, I think being out, being an out gay person in a institution, I mean, definitely my, in some ways that part of my, that part of my life and my whole life therefore is, is, is in some sense a pushback to this institution. Mm. So, so yeah, um, I get as the older I get, um, I have to be honest, the more I am. And I'm not saying this is the only way at all, but I, the more influenced I am by, this is actually not Wesleyan, but sort of a Franciscan idea of like, the best critique of the stuff we don't agree with, the best critique of the bad, um, put that in, in quotes, is the practice of the good. Yeah. And so I'm, 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 I'm most interested and most personally enlivened by looking for the constructive, and some would say pragmatic way, the third way, um, which doesn't mean avoiding conflict. Right. You have to do the critique, but I think it's looking for, you know, in the Bible, there is a... The, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. Um, I believe that's who God is. And I want to, I want to join that path. I think it's a really good segue to start talking about urban village. And I have a, there's a story that comes to mind. 
I would imagine you remember this. It, 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 I think it speaks a little bit to this. I, I love the phrase about both pushing back against the institution by practicing the good. I don't know if you remember this. I can't remember wh- where we were. It was late at night, fairly nearly at night. We we're on the north side. And there was a guy, I think at this point, there were, we had three sites. And there was a guy who was a part of our north side site who was just a pain in the butt and would write us emails that made no sense and was uh, a gadfly in the worst sense of the word. You and I were walking to the train. I think we were going somewhere. We happened to run into him. And this is in the moment of some of this back and forth. And you, when I say you got into it with him, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way or in a necessarily emotionally violent way, but I just remember you, you, you quickly, the two of you got into this conversation and you just kind of went toe to toe with him. Uh, but in a, in a way that I, I felt like I was just staying there watching this and I was like, uh, I don't know what I can contribute to this, but Trey's got this. So I'm just going to let him go at it with, with this other guy, but it was done. It was, it was done. You were pushing back, but I think you were also practicing good at the same time. Do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I haven't thought about that in a long, long time, but yeah, I do remember that. I have to say in this interview, Chris, you're, you're saying all these really nice things about me. So I should be interviewed <laughs> by you all, all every week. It was an ego, is an ego about inflation. Um, I'll say, I'll say other things later. So I'll say other crappy things later. I think, um, yeah, I do remember that. And, um, I guess you were asking about like being able to push back and, and conflict. I mean, I think there have been times and there are times still where, um, you know, uh, where conflict might feel where I might engage conflict less constructively, you know, but I, but I, I hope that over, over the long haul that be, because of God's work in me, that uh, the more stable I am knowing myself to be someone whom God loves um, and knowing the world to be uh, a a world full of people whom God loves, that that love makes for a stable place from which to, to live and to, and, and yes, to argue. And so that when you, when you're sort of taking a stand on something as small as that, I, I don't even remember what the issue was with, with that gentleman or stand as, as, as tectonic as, say, racism or, you know, um, sexual uh, uh, sort of the, the policy of uh, homophobia within the United Methodist Church and sort of calling that out, that you can, you can do that, you can be prophetic, mm. clarity and with, with, uh, with a lack of fear and with uh, speaking directly to those with whom you disagree or find to be acting oppressively. You can do that very clearly, but from a place of uh, buoyed, buoyed by love and and stable on the on the rock that is God. And I don't claim that uh, as a sort of sign of my own virtue, but I think to the extent that I do try to surrender to God in prayer and trust that this that faith is an ongoing transformative process that I am invited to by God. That, that the, the fruit of that. Sometimes, um, by God's grace, the fruit of that is you can show up to really hard conversations in a way that's not trying to make enemies or see people as as enemies. Yeah, and I think too, so let's talk a little bit about kind of how Urban Village came to be. 
So you were serving as an associate pastor in a suburban church, and then were you were appointed to went to a church in in the city, and then in the mid two thousands uh, are for those unfamiliar with the United Methodist Church were divided into different geographic areas called conferences, and we're in the Northern Illinois Conference. In the mid-2000s, the Northern Illinois Conference had a program for people interested in either planting new churches or starting new things, Uh, and so both you and I went through that at the same time. For you, what was it about entering into that essentially training um, or exploration? What was it about that that intrigued you and made you decide, I want to look into this? Yeah. I had gone to Holy Covenant, which was um, a, a church, a, a small church, as you say, on the north side that was that was really thinking about what's our next step in mission. And um, wonderful things were happening there as the lay, the lay folks kind of as we got organized together about what we were for. And I, I remember going to the Institute for Congregational Development, this, this academy that you mentioned, to sort of how can I needed to skill up mm. on how to lead, continue leading um, being part of the leadership at Holy Covenant as it changed. And so that I was, I ended up being there for five years, but in the midst of that academy where I'd gone to upskill, I mean, I, I, we were learning from church planters and church change agents and leaders across, um, across the Methodist church and I think ecumenical partners as well. But I, I, I have a, not just a memory, but I, I, I felt a call in the, in the, in the experience of that academy to, a call from God to start a church, which I was mm. so, somewhat surprised by. But um, um, so it was, a, it was a, in the midst of a place I'd gone to get, get training for congregational redevelopment. I heard God uh, ask me to start a church. And as you know, you were also feeling something similar at the same time. Um, and we found ourselves pondering what that could mean for us individually. We found ourselves pondering that together. And, you know, that was the, well, the, the first Genesis, the, the beginning, the beginning origins of um, Urban Village, wasn't it? Yeah, I was, I remember, surprise, I was surprised when I went through it. At first, I thought I was serving a suburban church and I thought, well, this will be, I'll learn some things that can help that church grow. For me, entering into it, I didn't necessarily know whether I had any entrepreneurial uh, leanings, but in the midst of that, discovered that, oh, maybe I do. The thought, the thought, again, for me, the thought of starting something new on my own just was just too daunting. I just didn't know if I had the skill set, the personality type, whatever. But I, I, because you and I were friends before, good friends before we started this together, I remember feeling like uh, it would be really both fun and um, interesting. And I think for me anyway, uh, a, a quicker path to success, whatever that looks like to do it with you. And so it was a combination of both of those, the entrepreneurial things that were stirring within me, our friendship. Uh, and then we are both really on the same page about what, about generally about what could work uh, mm-hmm. in, in Chicago. Mm. Uh, yes, the kind of the- a theological resonance that we had, um, our friendship, a per- the, pers- the complementarity of our personalities. I think we yeah. noticed that really early on, didn't we? I have this memory of sitting in my office uh, my study at Holy Covenant uh, when we were putting together the application to the cabinet, which is the you know the bishops kind of um, right hand women and men who make decisions about whether we'll be appointed to plant. We were writing up a proposal for the church that would become Urban Village, and we were going back and forth you know with word documents. And I remember at some point you said, 
and I still have these documents on my computer, but you said something like, normally this kind of back and forth around my writing style would totally, you know, piss me off. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that we are doing this together and it's working is a sign that maybe they can do this. And I I sort of remember that thinking, I thought to myself, if this is annoying, if if, it's good because this is the way I am. And so (laughs) these little details aren't bothering them now. Maybe, maybe we do have (laughs) as you know, I am a, the king of J's on the Myers Briggs. So, like, <laughs> what are we going to do? How are we going to do? Exactly when? Um, so, not that you're not that way too, but um, maybe I take it to the extreme. No, I think I think yeah, I think it was definitely a good sign. So, uh, for those who don't know, we've, we we turned in that document and eventually got the go ahead, and so we moved our families. I was living in the suburbs, moved into the South Loop neighborhood, and you and your husband moved into the Loop. Uh, of Chicago. And what do you remember about those um, initial days? Uh, we had gone through all that training. We had gone through what's called a church planning boot camp that made an emphasis on just making contact after contact after contact in any means necessary. And so, and we both, I think, had good relationships with our churches before we started this. So we, we came off uh, that, you know, feeling affirmed, uh, I think, as pastors, and then just being totally thrown into this New thing, absolutely new thing. So what are some of the things that you remember from those first few weeks and months? I, I was thinking about this. I mean, so many things from those first, that first season and that first year, but gosh, I remember not having anything to do. <laughs> <Sort of> like, <laughs> well, here we are, we're church planners. Uh, what's in your calendar? Um, and I remember thinking, gosh, and, and just, just filling the days with one-to-ones. I remember, I remember how easy it was to get one-to-ones. And I remember mm. thinking, that was part of my nervousness because like, Oh gosh, I've, you know, I've gone through the one-to-one training, which is a way of like, you know, meeting other people one-to-one. And I was like, will that actually work? But it, it, it turned out that actually people do want to sit down and talk about real things. Mm. I, was, I remember how quickly, um, how quickly my calendar filled up uh, with, with those one-to-ones and what a joy it, it was to be able to kind of, and a gift from the church the, the, of the United Methodist church to be able to give total attention to um, planting something new and, 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 and total attention to all those people. So I think that that's one thing I remember is feeling so grateful that I, by the Bishop been given this space and this time with you to focus on, let's do something totally new. Mm-hmm. I remember being at, um, I remember being at a coffee shop with you and Ann Williamson, who was uh, working with us uh, as an intern then, and she became director of discipleship a couple of years later, and sort of trying to build a website uh, and thinking about what it would look like. I remember conversations, this was a little, little later, but like conversations about how we would talk about the particularity of Urban Village mm-hmm. and being in the, in the coffee shop on Michigan Avenue, I think it was, where we struck upon the conversations about trying to talk about the both and, and you came up with the, we love the, we love campaign. And it's sort of like, I remember being in that coffee shop and sort of it sort of igniting um, and, and, and also crystallizing what we've been talking about. I remember a, um, in all those one-to-ones, I know this is your experience too. You know, you get out there and you're, you're talking to people and, and you're listening for what they care about in life and what they're worried about. And you're not trying to sell people on your vision, but you know, you uh, you know, you know, the one-to-one orientation. Um, and I, you know, had a number of one-to-ones in the first month that were all wonderful, but I'll, 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 one of the things I remember from the first summer of planting was sitting down with, um, 
with a, a woman who just moved from St. Louis. She's a Chicago suburban native. She lived in St. Louis for a while and she just moved back. She's still part of Urban Village. She is. She is. And uh, I remember sitting down with her and uh, it was one of those, I, I sort of listened and she told me about her story. I told, told, told her about my story on our hope for this church. And I said, how does that sound? And she was like, I'm in. And I, <laughs> it was like this real sense of like what, what you and I talked about, what God had been doing, you know, um, in our imaginations and hearts that it landed. And like, mm. she was, she was like, it, I'm in, I was like, Oh gosh, this isn't just a vision that we've made up. This is something yeah. that is. So that was Holly, Holly, yeah. um, Holly cats. And um, I, I can still remember the way the sun felt that we're sitting outside and you know exactly where we were. I can still remember the, the, the warmth of that afternoon in so many ways. I, I've shared this story before too. Uh, the reason I remember that was because you called me uh, after that. And I was on the, for the Roosevelt stop. And so for those in Chicago, you know, may know this, the red line is underground, but uh, the L elevated is on the orange and green line at the Roosevelt stop. And I was on the elevated uh, platform waiting for the train. And you called me and told me about this conversation. I, I literally just, cause I remember having, uh, there's the high of doing these one-on-ones, but then for me at some point, like, is there, is there any going to be any fruit out of this? Or are these just kind of, yeah. <laughs> Is this, are these just like nice conversations? Is it going anywhere? And I remember you calling me and telling me about that conversation. And I'm just feeling so elated, like this might work, even though we, at the time we still only had a few people who had expressed some interest, but it gave me some hope because for, for me, those first few weeks, and this is also when I ask you about this, you know better than me about the, the struggles of church planting and the often people who go into it are as they should be full of hope and vision and dreams Mm -hmm. and people often pat them on the back and say, go for it. And then there's that, you have that high, but then you quickly realize this is going to be a lot harder than I realize. And I remember this having the really great one-on-ones, but also just feeling like I, am I cut out for this? Uh, I don't know. um, If I had not done this, I tell this all the time, if I had not done this in a team with you, I just don't know if I could have done it just because I also had those moments of, I don't know if this is going to work. And so in addition to the the great experiences, share a little bit about those first few weeks and months about uh, any struggles or doubts that you had. Oh, that's a, it's funny, maybe selective memory. I've edited out some of those doubts. <laughs> maybe I was the only one who had doubts. <laughs> no, no, no. I do think I was probably in a way, I think and this is you and you and I are different people. I think particularly at that point, I think I was probably in that zone of um, we're going to make this work, you mm-hmm. know, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and like, um, sort of uh there are elements of this which which are not healthy at all but sort of like we're gonna do this you know and so i think you kind of have to have that a little bit when you're when you're doing this yeah some of it's spiritual gifts some of it's like pure d ego (laughs) um um, i think i think when did the doubts kind of show up um i think the doubts for me kind of things that sort of made kept me up at night um when we got closer to launch Mm. which i think pretty, pretty basic stuff for any church planter of like, will anyone come, yeah. you know, uh, will anyone come to our party? 
um, I mean, you tell, you tell stories, uh, a story I remember you, you sharing of like the two of us being sat at a, trying to do a focus group at, at the, was it the Barnes and Noble or yeah. the board? Yeah. On state street. And like, no, no one showed for our focus group, small group. And, you know, I remember that. Um, I remember some of the anxiety that crept in after we launched um, weekly worship mm. that following March and just sort of like, the anxiety of um, how to, you know, it's, it, this is, I think this is part of my personality. Like we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then when it happens and you're like, Oh, I knew we could start something, but can mm-hmm. we, can we keep this going and growing? And um, uh, I think, I think in that first, in that first summer uh, and maybe I can say more about this later. I think I was also coming up uh coming up against the, um, the end of my own uh, sort of a, a knowledge of the end of my own, um, power and personality to drive it. Mm. So something that, you know, and other people know is that in that first season of planting, I was also, um, getting sober. Mm. And so, um, I, I had been kind of in and out of the rooms of AA recovery for the couple of years before we launched, but that when, when we moved to Chicago, when we moved to the loop and started urban village, I, I went into the rooms of recovery and sort of stuck in. So, which was wonderful, but um, some of that drive that I was experiencing around like, we can do this. I can do this by ourselves. We can do this. Um, came crumbling down as I, as I realized that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, every human being has a certain amount of personality and drive and, and, and kind of power, but that will, that will work only for, uh, you know, a short amount of time. And, um, so I think for me, the doubts were once we'd gotten past the initial kind of party and the initial, um, you know, big launch events and it got into the real, the realness of community and and being sustaining people and being sustained ourselves. Uh, that's where I was like, Oh, this is a different enterprise than <laughs> making a show every week. And that, that makes it sound a little bit cartoonish, but I think, um, yeah, that's where some of the, the doubts came in and thank God for those doubts. And, mm. and those, um, thank God for those, those experiences. And they are many that showed me, um, I can't speak for you, but, but I hunched that you, you had some similar things too, that showed me like, ah, oh, this is actually, um, this is not finally about my own capacity to be, whatever impressive or say interesting yeah. things about God, but it's about being a part of the transformation process with other people. And I think, I think I'd like to think one of the things about urban village that we um, have pride ourselves on, but one of the things that um, has made it work is our wanting to be vulnerable or, or and wanting to be, and it's, it's an overused word now, authentic and real and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one of the reasons why we introduced testimony right off the bat too. And so I'm glad you brought up kind of your own journey around entering into AA spaces. And uh, I think that was, we had a, if I remember correctly, a fairly early on, like a grace and recovery group. So for, for people who are also in those spaces and, and wanting a space of, uh, of, of welcome and community. So talk a little bit more. Could you, as your own, we talked earlier about your identity as a Christian, as one who's called in vocation as a gay man. And so can you share a little bit about kind of your own, that also, that other part of your identity and your kind of coming to the realization that I'm an alcoholic and I need to start naming that and taking steps to, uh, to respond to it. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I would think about getting into AA as another part of my Christian journey. And mm-hmm. some of these AA um, taught me again um, what the gospel has always promised and what I think what I sensed in college about what God was offering. You know, I hadn't been able to receive it full as fully as God was offering it. Um, so yeah, in some ways, AA was for me about being born again. Um, and, and AA, you know, we think about AA or other 12 step groups or other recovery groups as simply, you know, a technology to help people stop drinking, but, and it is that, but it's so, so much more. And that's why I think I was delighted to discover that about AA. I didn't know that about AA. So I went to AA like most people go to, AA, like for the reasons most people go to AA, because I couldn't stop drinking by myself, you know? And I think, and um, just to say that there are lots of different ways to get sober and AA is not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, for me it worked. And But I went because, yeah, I couldn't stop drinking. Uh, I'd given it up, um, you know, I'd given up for New Year's. I'd given it up for the second week of New Year's. I'd given it up for Lent. Gave it up for Easter. Gave it up. You know, I could always, I could always give up drinking and stop drinking for a couple of days, but I couldn't stay stopped. Mm. And um, when I went to AA, I, I just uh, experienced, you know, what what most people, ex- what lots of people experience in AA was just a community that shows you that there is a solution that you mm. could, you can't, you can't. Um, as AA has it, you can't get better until you admit you have a problem that you can't solve by yourself. And uh, when you hit bottom is the, the, the parlance we use, the, the language we use, you, you hit the, your bottom is where you kind of come to the, um, that realization that there's nothing else that you can do to get better except to admit that there's nothing else you can do. Mm. But there is a power that is not you. That one is God. May you find him now, as we say in AA. Um, and to turn your life over, turn our lives over to the care of God. Um, and that is the foundation, that kind of acknowledging that you have a problem that you can't solve. There is one who can solve it, who's not you. And to turn your life over to the care of that God, that's the foundation. And then from that, you move into a real kind of very action-oriented kind of change process, which involves mm-hmm. honesty and confession and amends and reparations and ongoing prayer and meditation. And when I describe the, the 12 steps to, to Christian audiences who don't know 12 steps, I'm like, does that remind y'all of anything? <laughs> you know? So when I say it was, it was like a, a remembering, AA remembered to me the gospel. I mean that kind of literally. I think the 12 steps is the gospel sort of broken down. Um, so yeah, I got, I got, I got in and um, um yeah, I think I do think of myself as an alcoholic in recovery. I say I am an alcoholic in recovery. I haven't had a drink in you know, 10 and a half years. And mm. the great miracle is for about 10 of those years, a little more than 10, I haven't wanted a drink. And that's mm-hmm. the miracle. Yeah. I haven't got God removed from me. Uh, thanks be to God, the desire to drink. I, I don't desire to drink anymore, which feels, I think I was always someone who said, oh yeah, God's a transforming God. God's a healing God miracles happen, but I, I, I didn't, I had not experienced it in such a way. So, mm. so why am I, why do I still go to AA today? Um, it, it's, yeah, I don't want to drink again. Um, um, but also I think what I learned in AA, what I continue to learn from AA is that this process of, which I just described of knowing your problem, 
admitting it, turning it over, actually works really well for every other um, false idol and uh, addiction mm. that we struggle with, you know, mm. and I, I, I'm not, this is not my original idea, but, you know, Richard Rohr says we're all addicted to something. Yeah. Um, and for some of us, it's substances for others of us, it's processes. Um, so that process that AA offers, which is, I think the gospel, as I said, um, is, is a way of addressing all of our, all the systems and um, dilemmas that, that hold us captive. Um, so yeah, it's life. Well, you, um, we started on the ground, starting things summer of 09. Uh, your husband got a, a call to have both have a job and go back to his home in England in the very end of 2015. So in those um, six and a half years, uh, and for those who know the story, we were able to start, we became multi-site pretty quickly. Uh, and so as you think about those six and a half years, so this is a podcast about failure, do you have any, I guess if you could go back and, uh, and uh, this is kind of a lame question, but would there be <laughs> anything that you would change about those six and a half years that you could go back like, oh, this was a, either a failure or a mistake. I wish I could have gone back and fixed that. Acknowledging that in some ways, any mistake, any failure can be for the good. But uh, if you could go back and change something, have you thought about that? Like anything that you would tweak or maybe do a little bit differently? Yeah. I think one of the things that Urban Village got to um, in, in its kind of understanding of its mission and its reason for being was um, uh, starting, starting new Christian communities, starting, um, what's, what's the mission these days? <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been five years. Create, create Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city. All right. So, yeah, they, creating uh, these communities, I think... We, we, you and I, and our early folks who are part of that leadership uh, team and that movement for, for creating communities meant starting new worshiping communities, which I think is uh, absolutely for. I think um, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I think um, we might have failed if, if by not being able to think about a fuller range of what those communities could look like. Mm. So I think... Um, we thought it means, you know, 50 to a hundred people worshiping on, on a Sunday here um, or more 150 people, you know, and, and I think that's great, but I, I think, I think urban village has gotten there over the 10 years, but um, I, I, I wish we had early on said uh, there will be communities, uh, Christian mm-hmm. communities, part of urban village that will look like 10 people doing dinner mm-hmm. church together uh, every week, you know, and I, I know Urban Village had small groups, which is wonderful. But I think if we had been able to fold into, by God's grace, that DNA, early DNA of we're going to be a community of lots of different yeah. communities, a constellation of communities. And, you know, you may have heard of the Fresh Expressions movement that started in the UK that's now kind of gaining some traction in the US. And I think that that kind of idea that the church, you know, it's a sort of an obvious thing to say, right? The church can be wherever people gather, but doing that in a more uh, reflective and intentional way. So if I had it to go back, if I had it, if we had it to do over again, I wonder what it would have looked to sort of look like to have cast that vision and say, where are we going to have lay pastors who are leading mm. all intentional communities 
as, a, as part of Urban Village, but in a, in a very different way. And sort of expecting that our planting would, would include that as well. Yeah. Was that even on our radar, the, the, whole, the whole fresh expression, the whole ability to create different kinds of, of quote-unquote church? Because I don't, I, I don't remember it being on mine. I don't think it was. Um, so I think maybe it should have been. I mean, fresh right. expression as a, as a thing sort of started in the UK in 2004, 2005. So it'd been around for a half decade when, when we started, at least in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the greater church. But um, yeah, but regardless of whether it was called a fresh expression or not, I think, I think the failure, and I think I, I look back and I hope, I hope that I was someone and am someone who trusted other people besides me to, to lead. But I think, mm-hmm. I think, I think uh, to do it over again would to be to actually just to, to make it um, that much more of our culture yeah. for folks to be step, to step up, be recruited, coached, and supported and free to do those, to do those kinds of things. Yeah. That's a really good reflection because I think for the first few years, I think our, we thought, and I think that just kind of spilled out to everybody else, like starting something new means an act, a worshiping location mm-hmm. uh, and with all the bells and whistles that go, that go along with it. And I think too, for me anyway, and I think, I don't think we were unusual in this. I was looking at the, where are the hot neighborhoods Mm-hmm. Uh, and where, you know, demographically, you know, where should it be? And I think that was true, certainly for our first one. And then for others too, a little bit of like, well, we were thinking where are people coming from? And I don't know if I was thinking very creatively about other than if the de- demographics call for it and it's, if where people are coming, uh, that's where we should go without taking a step back, uh, and thinking a little more thoughtfully about where might this work? Yeah. Well, speaking of fresh expressions, let's let's jump ahead. So now the the work that you're doing with the Methodist Church in Britain. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And for those who follow kind of the nature of the church around the world, um, what often comes up is the essentially the secularization of Europe. Uh, and so um, I think what you're what you're doing now is both important work, but really hard work, at least from my vantage point. Uh, so Tell folks a little bit about your, what you're doing now and kind of what you see as far as this is a, asking you to paint in broad strokes here, the state of the church in, in, the, in Great Britain. Sure. Well, my, my title is uh, the Director of Evangelism and Growth uh, for the Methodist Church uh, in Britain. Um, and, and I uh, am part of a team that includes you know, uh, other officers who are thinking about church planting and pioneering, as we call it over here. Um, starting new Christian communities, church growth, evangelism, um, uh, apologetics. So I, I get the joy of being on a team of people who are thinking about kind of external focus of the church towards building relationships with unaffiliated people in different ways. And so I, I love that. Um, and it is a different context over here than it is in the U.S., though, you know, many have said that Europe Western Europe in particular is about a generation or a generation and a half ahead of where the U S is in terms of the end of Christendom. Mm. Um, um, it's, it's interesting. Like I think sec- secular secularity is a complex thing. And I think sometimes I've been deeply, deeply influenced in the past year by the writing of a guy called Charles Taylor, who's a French Canadian philosopher 
uh, Catholic. And um, his, his work is extremely conceptual and sort of above my head some of the time. So there's a guy called Andrew Root, who's a professor at Princeton Theology School. And he's kind of reflected on Taylor's work and, and sort of made it accessible for people like you and me. Um, still quite, quite heady books, but, but good. Anyway, I think I, why I say all that is because Taylor's work sort of um, explodes the idea that secularity is just about people who don't, uh, aren't interested in God, mm. like, you know, or anti-religion. That is certainly a part of it. But um, he talks about secularity as like several different layers. And, and, and one of the things he would say is that what secularity is, is less a, a, a question about whether God exists or whether there is a thing called spirituality or spiritual connection. He would say, actually, this generation, these generations, people are still very open to that. Mm. So actually, it's talking about things being post-secular these days. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. You've heard that before, maybe post-secular. People are are open, are curious about spiritual stuff, and you know, you see this not not just in traditional religions, but in you know the occult and earth-based stuff, which I guess is a traditional religion in some ways, and uh, New Age stuff. But anyway, that a sign of secularity, uh, Taylor says, is what he calls the collapse of the transcendence. That is a collapse of the idea of the expectation that God will move, will change things, will interact with the world. And so you might believe in God or believe in a higher force or believe in some, some idea of a divinity, but the collapse, he says, what marks secularity, Taylor says, is the, is the, is the slow kind of uh, the slow uh, accretion that has that has has moved into this kind of um, it's unconscious this unconscious um, uh, malaise we don't expect God to move we don't expect divine action mm. we don't you know and and he talks about that and that not that's not just Western Europe that is you know, the whole West he says and so um, wh- wh- when I read that it, it it spoke to me in such a deep way. Um, I mean, I do largely through AA, I have to say, have been sort of reborn, born again into believing that God can act and does mm. act to mm. heal, to transform, to change our lives, not in just a metaphorical way, but in a, in a metaphysical way. God, God's being is action towards us, to, among us. Um, but when he spoke about that, that secularity, that, that, that malaise, I recognized it in myself. And I think Root, Andrew Root talks about it and sort of talks to all these ministers who, who, who feel it in themselves, like, uh, and, and among the people they minister to. Um, and, and so the signs of that collapse are a belief that the ordinary world is all there is, um, that there is no, there's a flatness to the world. Mm-hmm. Our, our desire for transcendence, even when we kind of celebrate kind of rites of passage or sacraments or rituals that are supposed to be, you know, flooded with meaning and power. When we celebrate those things, we do that and, and we feel the emptiness even of those things. Um, so this is a malaise. And so I think that is, I think that is what I would describe as the context for ministry in, in the UK. Mm. Um, and I think probably in the U S as well, if I'm honest. Um, 
So that's, that's a long answer to your question about the state of the church. I mean, that's the state. Uh, that, that, Western that, society too. What's, it's the so- society. So yeah. the church, the, the, the institutional church, the mainline church, as we call it in the States, the traditional religion, uh, Christian religions, Christian denominations, sorry. So the Church of England, Methodist Church, the United Reformed Church, we, kind of the mainline churches. The story for all of us is the same, which is that our institutional way of being that we've had for hundreds of years is coming to an end. It doesn't work the same way. People are not um, affiliating in the same same way. You know, our, our governance, our polity, uh, our structures don't work anymore. Um And so I think that's just the reality. And I think anybody who's awake and alive in the UK who cares about these things will tell you that, that I don't mean that in any kind of, um, any kind of cynical way or any kind of like jaded way. I mean, that's just the reality. Like our current structures are coming to an end relatively soon. Um, And, you know, I think that's okay. You know, I think that is many people have said, you know, we are people who have who are, you know, born um, by by a story and a God uh, that um, takes us through death into resurrection, you know, and so like death is fine. I mean, it's not fine. (laughs) Death is part of the story. And so institutional shift. I'm not as fussed by it as some people are. Um, That's where I think my my job. is so enlivening. It's like we get to imagine and, and seed and uh, pray about and help experiment with what it looks like for the church of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. in the Methodist church, but also with our ecumenical friends and people who don't affiliate with any organized denomination, we get to conspire together to see what, what the church of Jesus Christ will look like in the generations ahead. And I find that extremely enlivening. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love that. I love that part of my work. I love that. I get to, be a, a, a principal architect in that um, with others across the Methodist church. So there's a, there is like there is in the States, you know, among some, some quarters, a deep, deep anxiety, a deep, um, deep, deep sadness that um, uh, some, sometimes a deep anger that, you know, things aren't going the way we want them to go. Um, and we all experience that from, from time to time. I, I do. But yeah. I, I experience most of the time a real sense of like um, of hope and um, a sense like, well, you know, uh, I go back time and again to the story of um, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 or 4,000. And, you know, Jesus is kind of riffing on the theme of abundance, not scarcity. And we are not the wonder workers in this story. We are not the ones who, if we just work harder or put enough church growth programs in or really get super focused, then things will change. You know, I think I come back to all, all, all we do is offer what we have. Um, and we trust Jesus to take it and make something beautiful out of it. And um, back to that surrender, surrender our own power to a power greater than us. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, amen. Thank you for sharing that. Um I'm going to close our conversation with asking you the question that I ask everybody uh, to close with, and that is to share a failure story from your own life. Uh, And so as always, this can be something uh, major, something small, something that happened yesterday, something that happened several years ago, uh, something that we can laugh about or that might make us cry. I don't know. So what do you got for us? 
I've got a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> How many do you want? Um, I think maybe a story I'll share has to do with Urban Village and my own leadership. So I was part of uh, the second site uh, of Urban Village, which is the Wicker Park site. And you know, Chris, that at, one, at, at some point in that first year, we sort of decided that who would be kind of the primary pastoral point person for the, the first site, which was downtown, the Loop, and the second site, which is Wicker Park. And, uh, you know, I was going to be the point person for Wicker Park. And we were still sharing that, but it was kind of my responsibility to attend that. And you know that the Wicker Park site of Urban Village, it started strong with like 80 or 90 people on a Sunday night, but it just, it just petered out over over about 18 months, there was a slow leak. And um, we, I think we were doing everything we knew to do. And not just me and you, but we had a team of fabulous lay people who were really just trying to figure out why, why are things not going well? And, you know, uh, we just kept sort of leaking numbers and um, we shifted, shifted leadership. We shifted the way we engaged the neighborhood. We knocked doors and oh, we did all this evangelism. And just we moved the, moved the, the worship from the sanctuary to the fellowship hall to the basement. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. The old church planter, uh, interior design. Oh, let's move into a smaller space and make ourselves feel better. We were doing that. And I think, you know, so it felt like it felt like a failure and some, in some ways it was, and we weren't, we weren't, we were trying, we were trying as best as we could, but it just was not working. And, um, I mean, you know, some of the, you know, the story well, but uh, I think the, the summer, the second summer of that site's life, we were really kind of in an intentional uh, process of trying to discern what was going to happen. And so, you know, I, I was feeling like a failure anyway. Um, uh, but, the, 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 oh, I'll never forget. And I got a call. This won't make that much sense for people who are outside of the United Methodist Church. Um, this won't make much sense for those who are outside of the Methodist church, but I got a call from, uh, one of my bosses, Martin Lee, uh, who's the congregational developer that coming to our worship service that afternoon, uh, to visit us was a guy called Adam Hamilton and Adam Hamilton. For those of you who don't know the United Methodist landscape is like one of the most successful, uh, church planters and pastors in our denomination. He's, a, he's an, a lovely guy and a smart guy and a super talented guy and a gracious guy, but he was going to come to worship and he showed up with his family. They were, his daughter was living in Chicago at the time. He was. Yeah. So there was like he and his wife and maybe two or three kids and they showed up <laughs> and they doubled our congregation from like five to 10. <laughs> and I remember preaching there in this grotty basement with nobody. And we're like, we're like the Chicago area's new United Methodist church plant. And, you know, I think my sermon was okay, but just obviously I was feeling, and this is my own, you know, personality defects and all that kind of stuff. I was really obviously concerned with what Adam Hamilton thought. And it was just a train wreck. And he came up afterwards and said, you know, really nice things. But it was just, you know, I was just feeling like such, such a failure. Like, oh, Adam Hamilton, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I have no idea what Adam, Adam Hamilton thought. Or thinks uh, I, I have, you know, he never wrote a nice card and said, um, you know, uh, thank you for the ministry. Not that he should have, but like, so I have. He did write a check. We should say that he did write a check to us. So he did write a check. yeah, he's a faithful tither. Yeah. But I, I think that kind of coming up to uh, sort of failing at something, which was like the main, the main part of my 
professional portfolio. I was supposed to help plan a church and we couldn't do it. And then failing like in, in the view of someone mm. who is, you know, yeah. uh, such a, such an esteemed leader. That was pretty, I was, it was a shock to the ego. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it trends, it trends out. Okay. Like as, 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 you know, not every failure story does, but you know, I think in some ways that, that, that of that experience of just knowing, Oh, we, I think we've hit bottom here. <laughs> At least I had that. We, we then followed the next three months, you know, Wicker Park, the leadership, as you know, took a real, um, took a real sort of timeout Sabbath sabbatical to pay attention to what God was calling it to and decided after a few months to sort of make some serious changes and, yeah. and to change location and to change uh, time. And so, and the story's different because of that, but um Woo, on that Sunday, I rem- didn't we, were, we were going back and forth preaching. So was it, had, was Andersonville, had it launched yet? I can't remember if it had launched yet. It had. So we were going back and forth. So in the early days, when w- Wicker Park started, we started our second site about six months after our first site. And so one of us would preach both at the Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon at Wicker Park. And so essentially we were going back and forth, I think. And I remember that day when you, I don't know, texted me or called me and said, Martin called and Adam Hamilton was going to be there. And I remember my first reaction was like, dang, I wanted to be the one like, cause you were all, you were, you were the one preaching that day. And I was like a little jealous because you were the one, but then when I heard the story later, I'm like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Yeah. I would have been the one preaching that day. <laughs> it might've gone a different way. <laughs> oh, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it very much. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's good though to look back I and mean, it is in 10 years really and to look back and yeah i mean isn't it nice that those stories which like felt like um maybe this is the case for all of us who fail which is everybody right you look back and the things which seem like just epistemic shifts and like oh my god and you look back and you think oh welcome to being human you know right. it's like we're you know it's okay and um uh, you know, I, I'd love to. I'd love to see Adam Hamilton Day. Maybe I'll see him again someday and be like, "Do you remember a really shitty sermon?" <laughs> <laughs> he'd probably be like, "He'd probably be like, either he'd be like, absolutely, I remember it, or like, oh, I visit so many churches, you don't even ring a bell, you know." <laughs> yeah, I, he probably would be gracious, and I don't know if he'd be telling the truth or not. Would say, "A, I remember it so well. You guys are doing great work." Something like that. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, probably so. Internally, he's like, "Oh God, these guys! I thought this was like supposed to be this great thing in Chicago." <laughs> I still, I to this day, I think some. some love to hear from you. Sometimes our, I think our reputation exceeds where we are, and so I, I still, to this day, feel like when someone says, oh, "I've heard so much about Urban Village, I can't wait to see it," and I'm like, "Oh no," and so I, I feel so self-conscious about you know because I think sometimes they think they're coming to like Willow, some big mega church like uh, Hillsong or Willow or something, they're coming into this massive and there's still to this day, you know, 50, 60 people in some of our sites. And I'm like, Oh, what if they think? And at the end, I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, we're, we're trying to be faithful and you know, it's going to be what it is. I think the thing that makes me proudest about urban village, and, <clears throat> and the, the, the small part that I got to play in it was, um, I think, it was a couple of years ago now y'all is after I left. Um, so it's been, it's been, I don't know when it was, but you, you made a map of all the people who had been interns or mm. leaders who'd gone on to plant other churches in the Methodist yeah. church or other denominations. 
And there were like, you know, 30 or 40 spots in that map. And I think you're still doing that in different ways now through the e-news of telling stories about people. And I just, I think, I mean, Urban Village is beautiful in and of itself, that community in Chicago, which, you know, has changed and will continue to change. I probably wouldn't recognize half the people at the Wicker Park site now, four years in, because of the nature of Chicago. And, and so it's beautiful there, but that it has been this kind of missional centrifuge. And I just feel that's the thing I'm proudest of, that, yeah. that what we together with God and all these people created was a church that actually freed people to know that they are ministers too. And not just in some you know banal, vague way, but like they are called by God and can start new things. And I, I feel really, really proud of that. I was just in West Ohio uh, last week um, talking, and that was the thing that struck me too, is there are a couple of different churches that talk about how we inspired them in, in some form or fashion. And that we were able to, um, every once in a while people will say that we were groundbreaking and being an LGBT friendly church, but I'm like, there were churches that were doing that long earlier than we were. I think what we small thing that we brought to it was just coupling the transformative power of the gospel. And again, not that other churches didn't do that, but just like we, we really talked about that a lot with the affirming uh, community. Um, and that, so that others could see, Oh, you can, you can do both of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if any smidgen of inspiration that we brought to somebody else, as you noted, even if they're not officially part of urban village, um, that's pretty remarkable. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Well, Trey, it's been a joy to uh, have this conversation with you. And um, I hope uh, you and I obviously will be talking uh, in future weeks, but I hope others can hear this and be inspired and can check out the good work that you're doing in Great Britain now. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's been, it's been so much fun to chat. And um, yeah, if you're someone that... Um, would like to read about what the uh, Methodist Church in Britain is doing, you can check out our website and uh, see um, all the new, the new dreams that, uh, that we're dreaming over here. All right. I'll put the link uh, in, the, uh, in the Podbean page so you can take a look at that. Thanks, Trey. Thanks, Chris. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Trey for giving his time for this conversation. To find that website that Trey mentioned, you can go to methodist.org.uk. And I also put a link in the Failing Boldly Podbean page that goes directly to the Evangelism and Growth section of that website, and that includes a nice video of Trey. To learn more about my book and the ministry I'm a part of, you can go to christiancoon.com. My next guest for the podcast is the author and activist Shane Claiborne. We had a very lively conversation, so I'm looking forward to posting that. So I hope you'll consider subscribing to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and maybe leave a review as well, as that would help. Thanks again for listening.